Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, if you would, join me there in your home or wherever you're viewing right now. Uh, the book of Ephesians, all right? That's in the New Testament. I think it's the 10th book in the New Testament. So we're taking a little break from uh, our study we've been in for over a year in the book of Matthew. Uh, so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. And I realized that as soon as that um, handout was sent, uh, the link to print that at your home, uh, probably some saw the references at the top of your handout, and then you also noted the extra page, and it probably clicked in your head as to why there's an extra page. And what you saw was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 10. And if you know much about the New Testament, and I realize some of you are like, I don't know hardly anything about the Bible. Uh, could I encourage you, if you have a chance to put your hands on a Bible nearby, or if you have one on a phone or on a tablet that you can pull up, again, look at the New Testament, find Ephesians chapter 1, and follow along, because though the verses will be on as we read, uh, they'll not be up throughout the sermon. It's very important. I want you to actually see uh, these, these passages, these truths of the Word of God. Some of you who are familiar with your Bible are like, how in the world is, does this guy think he's going to cover these 21, these 21 verses? Uh, well, he's not, all right? Uh, we're going to read them. We're going to end up focusing on four thoughts. We're not going to try to cover all of the 21 verses. But here's what we're going to do. Uh, here at Graceview, we don't just like rush through the reading of the passage of Scripture so we can hurry up and get to the preacher's thoughts. So we're not going to do that today. We don't ever do that. Uh, so we're going to, it's going to take us a little time. So I'm prepping you in advance. We're going to begin here in a moment reading in verse 13 and reading through chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to comment along the way. And this is as important as anything that will be done in the remainder of our service. And before I begin reading in verse 13... Uh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul writing to some believers in, an, in a city called Ephesus. I was able to go there uh, just six months ago. This might have been my favorite stop of those ten days. And just a fantastic, able to go through the ruins and just kind of think through some of these things. This city was so key to so many parts of the New Testament, or actually so many books in the New Testament are tied back to this city. And certainly this letter written particularly to the believers here. Before I begin verse 13, one more thought. So here, here we go. And I'm going to repeat some things some of you have heard. But you regulars, I want you to really get it again so much so that you can repeat it yourself. So much so that you anchor your thoughts in this doctrine. Everything that we're about to read flows out of the first two words in verse 13. Everything flows out of the first two words in verse 13. We have a pronoun, him. The song that was just sung was filled with pronouns. You say, man, Christmas, Easter seems to have a lot of focus on Jesus. It's always about Jesus. That's right. Today's title of the message is Jesus, God's remedy for man's greatest need. So what we're going to talk about today is what matters more than anything in all the world. Today's message is about what matters the most of anything in all the world. And it all flows from these two words, in Him, in Christ. So we have lots of doctrine thrown at us. And I'm not going to expect any of us to understand all that we're reading. But I want to get these two words. So right now you may be thinking, what does that mean in Him? I'm going to repeat, I've said this many times. Ladies and gentlemen, we may not have all the same ancestors, but we have all of us the same one ancestor, and that is Adam. We all come from Adam. Adam was the first man. 
And Adam sinned, and we have all followed him into sin. What that means is that you and I are born in Adam. We're in Adam. What he did counted against us. But God has made laws and rules that Christians are not just in Adam and everything Adam did counted against them, but God has made a law that Christians are put in Christ. And it's real theological, but the best way I can explain it is just as I am in 120 Centerville Road, the building, the main worship center of Graceview Church right now, and you're wherever you're at, in Christ is an actual location, and here's what it means. When Jesus was on the cross, if you put your faith in him, it counts as if you were on the cross. When he was in the grave, to be in Christ means we're in the grave with Christ. To be in Christ means that when Christ was raised from the dead, we are in Him being raised from the dead. When He is ascended to the Father, we are in Him ascended to the Father. This is today's text. And so as He's in a seated, resting position, we're going to read in a moment. We, spiritually, already there with Him in Christ. Everything that we're going to read flows from, are you in Christ? Or are you still only in Adam? We're all born in Adam. Some are put in Christ, and we'll see it's by faith. Verse 13, here we go. Would you look at your scripture or the verses on the screen? In Him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in Him, what happened? You also were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed in that moment. You were marked for God. Notice it's not something that happens later. Boy, one day I hope to get the Holy Spirit. No, the text is very clear. In Him also, when you heard and believed, you were sealed at that moment. Holy Spirit, the end of verse 13, now 14. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee... Of our inheritance. He's the guarantee. So Paul's been saying, Christians, we have this awesome inheritance in heaven. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. So right now, I'm not living fully in possession of my inheritance. What do I have in the meantime? The Holy Spirit. He finishes by saying, to the praise of His glory. God's glory the Son, Jesus Christ's glory. Paul now says, For this reason, Ephesians, because, two reasons, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Those are two separate things. Paul is saying, hey, believers, Christians in Ephesus, I've heard of your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and I've heard of your love for the saints. Guys, it's not enough. And many of us, or predominant one more than the other. Some are loving and they're not real strong and loyal and faithful to Christ. They're leaning a little more toward the love side. Some are very strong in their faith and they're very loyal and faithful to the Lord. Just not that loving. And Paul is saying this group has a perfect blend. They are faithful to the Lord Jesus and they are loving toward all the saints. He says, because of that, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Father, thank you for the Ephesians. That's what Paul did. And then he says in the middle of verse 16, remembering you in my prayers. 
And in his prayer begins in verse 14. This is what he prays. In my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. I'm praying that the Father of glory would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to uncover truth for you in the knowledge of, and he's going to say four things. Four things Paul is praying that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and have revelation and have knowledge of. What are the four things at the end of verse 17? Of him. To know God, number one. I'm praying that you'll have wisdom and knowledge and revelation to help you have wisdom and knowledge, number one, of him. Then verse 18 continues. Also he adds to that his prayer, having the eyes of your hearts. He's talking about our spiritual perception. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? Three things. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Believers, Paul is praying that you will know the hope of the calling to which God has called you. And then he says, what, secondly there, what are the riches of his, this is a little different wording, and some of us have never thought of it this way. Actually, what this saying, he's, he's praying, I'm praying for you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God, of, listen, catch this, of the sure and certain confident expectation, the hope, not I hope so, the confident expectation that my calling to be the adopted child of God will give me that inheritance. But the third thing he says in the middle of verse 18, he says, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He's saying not only our inheritance, but that that we would be aware of God's glory. How glorious is God? He is so glorious, and His glory is the sum of all of His attributes, that that God's attributes were put on display and worked in such a way that it resulted in us, believers, being the inheritance of Christ. So He is our inheritance. I don't know why He wants us, but the work of God shows His glory so much that we are actually the inheritance of Christ. The Son given by the Father. Son, because of your faithfulness and your loyalty in carrying out the mission, I am giving you these saints as your inheritance. Believers, I want you to know that you are the inheritance of God. Verse 19, fourth thing, he's praying for wisdom and revelation and knowledge of what is the, catch this wording, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul says, I am praying that God will show you the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, toward for us who believe. What kind of power are we talking about? His immeasurable great power that is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Here's the illustration. Here's the evidence. How powerful is God? Paul says, I want you to know how powerful the immeasurable power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When that moment, when God raised him from the dead, when his eyes opened, at that moment, the power of God, he wants us, he's praying that we'll realize this great power. But he didn't stop there. Not only did he raise him from the dead, but also seated him. Literally, Jesus ascended after 40 days of being on earth. He ascended. 
and seated, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's going on right now. Christ is right now seated. He's not working. He's not straining. His work is done. He is seated. Verse 21, Paul says, I want, I'm praying you'll get this, that Christ is seated far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age. He's talking about angelic forces and demonic forces and any other power that might be out there, Christ is seated far above them, verse 21 again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And how else have we seen God's power? He put all things under His, He the Father put all things under He the Son's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm not going to preach verses 21, 22, 23. There's a lot in there. What that is literally saying, some commentators have pointed out, that we, the church, are the complement of the body of Christ. He's the head, but we're carrying out the mission. He's doing it through us. We're the complement. We're his fullness. We're his body, the church, and he's the head, seated. Now chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Same group of people. Keep it going. Keep our focus. It's a lot of theology, a lot of meat. It's rich. I realize that. And when and you were dead, and you were dead in the trespasses, in sins. So there's these trespasses and sins. We're in them. We're dead. But notice verse 2, in which you once walked. We're walking in deadness, in trespasses and sins. Where are we going? Following the course of this world, the whole world, all people have ever been born other than Jesus, all heading in one direction. Isn't it amazing? Not one person has ever gone against the grain and not gone in the course of the world. We have all gone in the course of this world, continues verse 2. Why are we all going this direction? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan himself. Literally, Satan is at the front of it all. Come on, come this way. Come on. Follow me, and all of us literally are following the course. We're in sins and trespasses. We're in our deadness, following him along with all the rest of the people who are disobedient. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the passions of our sinful flesh, not just the skin, but our our, our evil, sinful nature, we lived in the passions of that, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Our body wants things, and sometimes it craves things. It takes its appetites and twists them and perverts them and makes them sinful appetites. We were living and giving into those and of the mind. The, the carnal, fleshly, evil, sinful mind wants to think and dwell on things, and we were doing that. And we're by nature, guys listen, here's what God's word says. By our very nature, our nature, we're children of wrath. Deserving the wrath of God like the rest of mankind. There's verses 1 through 3. But, God. But, God. Here's the flip. This is what's happening down, 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 down. But God, verse 4, being 
rich in mercy, having plenty to spare, more than is needed, rich in mercy. Why is he so merciful? Because of the great love with which he loved us. So his love is driving his mercy. How merciful is he? How much does he love us? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. We're dead in our trespasses. He loved us so much, so merciful. He made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul can't even wait to get to verse 8 and 9. He has to slip it in. He has to write it. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. We were brought alive in Christ. He raised us up. So you said, yes, a while ago, Jesus is seated above all the powers. He's at the right hand of God, resting and seating. Verse 6 says, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you're like, that's awesome. When's that going to happen? Right now. Already happened. As good as done. Physically, I'm on earth in South Carolina today. But I am spiritually, literally seated with Christ right now at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Verse 7. Why? So verse number 7 is actually... My, probably is my new favorite place, my new favorite scripture in the Bible. Because it's, this is just awesome. Verse 7. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the, in, in my Bible, I have two columns. And on one side of the left column, it's talking about literally on the top line, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And then on the other column, I'm about to read verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable, you can't measure the riches, the excess, the plenty to spare riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Three more verses. For by grace... Having laid all that theology out, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God's grace, you have to have faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works on our end. So that no one may boast. No one can boast. For we are His workmanship. We're his masterpiece. Created. Why did God create us? Here's one reason in verse 10. We've heard another reason in verse 7. Here's another reason. Created, Christians, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Be clear. Not becoming a Christian by good works, but equally clear. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what I want to do is spend... The next few hours going word by word. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to go word by word of all of that, right? Four thoughts. Number one, look at chapter two. Our first two thoughts come out of chapter two, the first five verses. But first, look at the first three verses if you're taking notes. First thought today. And actually, before I jump into that, I need to give you a note you have on your handout. Did you catch what Paul prayed for? All right? He's praying, God, would you enlighten your people to know you the confident expectation of their calling being an adopted child of God, would you, Lord, enlighten them about your glory that is seen and revealed in your work to make us the inheritance of Christ, and then would you reveal the power of God? 
And so what Paul's prayer here is, Warren Wiersbe words it this way. He says, he does not ask God to give them what they do not have. That's not Paul's prayer. God, would you give them something they don't have? His prayer is rather that God will reveal to them what they already have. What we already have, he's praying that God would reveal this to us. And then that's those four things we need to know about them. And that's today's message is unpacking the results of those four things that Christians have. How did it all happen? Now notice number one in verses one through three. Number one, the basic problem of all people. There's a basic problem. You say, Jeff, I know our basic problem. We've got this coronavirus going on, and it's just it's really hampering our lifestyle, and it's killing my business, and that's our basic. No, that is a symptom of our problem. The basic problem of all people is found in verses 1 through 3. Here it is. It's our sinfulness. Guys, the, the sinfulness of all mankind is a biblical fact. You might find a few people, most would agree with the Bible, you may find a few people that would disagree and say, I don't think all people are sinners. Hey, how come nobody has ever nominated? How come you can't think of one person that you're going to put out and say, I think I have found the sinless person. Bring them out. I want to meet them. Tell me about them. Tell me they've never coveted in all of their life. Tell me they've never told any kind of lie, even if it was by accident. No one exists like that. The universal sinfulness of mankind is a biblical fact. I've shared before that the New Testament gives us at least five ideas, five words that give us an idea of what, how our sinfulness reveals itself. Just to review quickly. There's one word, and I'm not, I don't know the Greek words behind these, but I'll give you the thought, okay? Here's one idea, debts. Remember, we pray, Father, forgive us our debts. What are debts? Our debts are that being the creation of God, we have certain obligations to God. We are obligated to God. But not one of us has done all the things that we're obligated to do. This is talking about what we don't do. Some of our sin is what we don't do. It's our omissions. We have failed in our obligations to God. Here's a second kind of sin that the New Testament uses. It's a line that God draws. And God says anything over that line is sin. And we sin this way. We on purpose, knowing, we know God doesn't like an activity, and we do it anyway. We all do that. We've all done that. We all go over the line intentionally. There's a third kind, and it's kind of like that, but guys, I think it's actually even more flagrant than that. What it means is the word for lawlessness. So it's acting like, I don't care what the law of God is. I'm going to live like, life like there is no law of God. Yes, I know God says do that. I'm not going to do those things. I know God says don't do those things. I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to do them anyway. It's just acting like, acting like there is no law of God. And now look at verse 1 because we have two more words, and these are the two words here. And in our minds, Paul has actually chosen the two maybe least flagrant of the five thoughts. You see, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see the last word of verse number 1, sins? Here's what it means. Ready? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. There's a kind of sin, and it means we have all, here's the mark, not one person that you know, and not you either, and nor have I, ever been all that we could be. No one, no one not me, not you, no one you know, has ever been the perfect son, the perfect daughter. No one has ever, I mean, done all that they could be. No one has ever done all that they could do or have been all that they could be. 
There is not a parent out there. Not one time has a person been the perfect parent. Not one person has been the perfect husband or the perfect wife. Not one person has been the perfect employee or employer or friend or neighbor. We have all missed the mark, and that is sin. We have this other word, trespass. Now, earlier we talked about this line that God says over that line, that is sin, and that is iniquity. But here's this word trespass. It's a little different because this, this, here's what this means. We fall over the line. Earlier we intentionally, I don't care about the line. I know God says it's wrong. But guys, here's the fact. There are some things that people don't even know the Bible says is wrong and they do, that, do them. There are other things that they don't do on purpose, but they end up doing them anyway. I alluded one a while ago. Many of us have lied, and we didn't mean to. We said we were going to be somewhere, but traffic was so bad. Or we got stopped behind a train or literally an accident, and we couldn't help it. We stopped, but the fact is we didn't get there when we said we lied. We lied. There are folks listening right now who probably would not use the word God in vain because that's his title, and they've learned you don't take God's name in vain, but they would say Lord without any meaning, which is actually worse in other words, they would feel bad about saying, oh, my God, but they don't feel bad about saying, oh, my Lord. And they take the Lord's name in vain. There are others who have no clue that just envying after other people's things or possessions or their positions or their talents or their relationships, envying those things, well, that can't be wrong. Yes, it is sin. You didn't know it, but you're falling over the line of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you're taking notes, we want to begin what is this idea of dead? What Paul's point, all mankind, we were born spiritually dead. We're born actually bent toward sin. We're born spiritually dead, bent toward sin. Dead here, I want to propose two thoughts. They're a little different, but they're connected. You ready? To be spiritually dead means that we are born actually separated from God. So there's God, and then there's our sin here, and this sin is a barrier, and we're living in the sin. We're born separated apart from God. Why? God's nature hates sin. And so we are separated from God because His nature keeps Him from us. But let's just be honest. Our nature loves and chooses sin more than it loves God. And so we actually choose our sin. We don't go toward God. We stay in our, we're born in our sin. We choose our sin. God will not come over into our sin, and so we are separated from God. Hey, do you know that over here in sin, some people sin more. Some people on a scale that we think in our mind, they may sin worse than others. But here's the fact. All have sinned. All have sinned a great amount. And all are equally, this is key, equally dead. It's not like some are more dead and others are less dead. No, this one may sin more or worse in our eyes. But the fact is, all have sinned, all have sinned much, all are equally dead. Second thought of this verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Second thought means this. Spiritually dead people cannot. Now you have to, I pray that the Lord makes this make sense. Spiritually dead people cannot understand the truths of God. They just can't understand. They can learn facts. Like right now, this point may, may, may not be hitting home with someone. 
Spiritually dead people cannot make sense, cannot understand the truths of God. They can't, spiritually dead people cannot respond to the truths of God. We just can't. This pulpit here is dead. If it had ears, it has heard this gospel, this truth of God many, many times, but it is unable to respond. In the same way, a physical body that is lifeless and dead, you can insult that dead body, you can slap the dead body, you can kick the dead body, you are not going to get a response from it. That's the same thing. All of us are born in a way where where the truth of God can be all around us. We can be hearing it right now. On our own, we cannot make sense of it, and we cannot respond to the things of God. Now, just before we leave this first point, as you looked at verse 1 through 3, did you catch who this is speaking to? Did you notice who this is talking about? Understand, verse, and notice verse 1, and you were dead. Okay, you were dead. If you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he's talking about believers who are faithful to Christ. So if you want to write this down, verses 1 through 3 are speaking about people who are going to heaven. This is not a group of people that are on their way to hell. So I don't want you to think, boy, these are bad people and these are the people that are in hell. These are folks who have sinned just as much and in some cases just as bad as those that are in hell right now. But they're not going to go to hell. They're not going to go to hell. Praise the Lord, I'm in that group. Are you in that group? So, these are believers. But one more thing before we go to our second thought today. Did you notice the past tense verbs in God's word in verse 1? You were dead. It says you walked, past tense. It says you once lived. So, I want to make a clear point. What the Bible teaches is that even though Christians in their past have sinned just as much and just as... Badly as as a person that is in hell right now, what this text is saying is that even though we are not yet perfect, nevertheless, we have had a change of life to such a degree that we are no longer slaves to sin. We still commit acts of sin, but Paul says you were dead. You once walked. You once lived that way. Now you don't live that way anymore. Why? Because Christians do not have to sin. Yes, we commit acts of sin. We don't have to sin. And that is different. And so now would you look with me at verse 4 and 5 and write this down. We've seen the common sinfulness of all mankind. Number two, notice the glorious remedy of God. And that's kind of the title of our message today is that Jesus is the remedy. Jesus is the answer of God to meet all of mankind's needs. So verse 4 and 5 is the glorious remedy of God. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Can I propose, guys, listen, verses 1 through 3, it doesn't get any worse than verses 1 through 3. It just doesn't get any worse than that. I'm going to propose to you, it doesn't get any better than verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and verse 10. It doesn't get any, how is this bridge? How does God do this? I mean, this is the absolute worst case scenario, and all of a sudden, it's now the best case. It couldn't be better. What happened? God had to do something to bring about this change. His solution? It's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's focused on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what had to happen. For us to go from the the depravity and the awfulness of verses 1 through 3 to the glorious hope and expectation of verses 4 through 10, Christ, here's what had to happen. 
the Lord, the Son of God, had to become a man. And he had to come into death with us. He had to enter death with us to, be, to become dead, spiritually dead. He had to go there through the crucifixion in order to lead us to life. So again, how does the Lord do this? Through the fact of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Very important what I'm about to say. The crucifixion of Jesus is a historical fact. It is in all four Gospels. A man named Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four of those men. You say, well, those are Bible guys. A man named Josephus who had no skin in the game, who did not care at all about that. He's just a historian writing about the life and times of the Jewish nation in the Roman Empire. He talked about and wrote about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not going to take time today to read all of the gospel accounts about the crucifixion. But I do want you to just hold your spot in Ephesians. Go with me, if you would, over to Mark chapter 15. Would you look at Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. Notice, this is an absolute historical fact that is important. Mark 15. Just, I'm telling you, if you knew how many verses I've cut out today because of time. Look at verse 13. So the scene is the Jew, Jewish leaders have plotted against Jesus. They've arrested him. They've lied against him. In their hatred, they want him to be killed. They've taken him to the Roman governor. The Roman governor named Pilate wants no part of this. He does not want to grant their wish to kill this man because he's, he's interrogated him. He's found no fault in him. And so I can't preach it all, but over and over, like literally six times, Pilate has tried to have Jesus released. One of his attempts was to actually have Jesus scourged and beaten by the Roman soldiers, probably within an inch of his life, to make him a bloody mess. Brings him out before the Jewish people, and the crowd still rejects. He hopes that would play on their compassion, and they would not want to see him killed. This is the healer who had helped the nation look out at him as a bloody mess. But even that would not lead them to withdraw the cries that they're going to give. Another plot that he has is Pilate has a custom. At this time of the year at Passover, he releases a prisoner that they ask for. It's as though he finds the worst guy he has in prison, brings him out, and then he brings... Jesus Christ puts them side by side and says, which of the two do you want me to, who do you want loose free on the streets? He's confident that they will say, we want Jesus loose on the streets. This other man needs to be killed. He needs to get what's coming to him. He's a murderous robber. But Pilate's plan doesn't work. Look at verse 13. And he presents the two men and they cried out again, crucify him. Just the crowd has worked up. The, the priests are working up. The enemies of Jesus have worked the crowd up. They're listening to them and not to the truth. And they're crying out, crucify. So verse number 14, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Why? Why, why do you want me to crucify him? What has he done? So they start giving him some answers. No, they don't give answers. They shout it all the more, crucify. Notice, they don't answer his question. They just shout down his question, getting louder. Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having already scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So guys, this is a historical fact. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's all in there. I trust you will have possibly already read it, many of you this week. But would you leave that and go back to where we were just a few weeks ago? Would you go to Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah 53, everybody got your Bibles there? You'll see these verses on, on the screen, I hope. But go there in, in, 
in your own Bible, if you can, Matthew, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Here's why. So we can read all of the gospel accounts, and I find it very interesting that in none of them, once Christ is crucified on the cross, do you get a play-by-play and like a frame-by-frame and, and all of the physical activity of the Lord. You don't really get that. We know that he's thirsty. We know that he cries out. He has a conversation with his mother and one of his disciples named John. We know a few other things, and it gets dark. He cries out to God. He talks to, a, uh, to one of the other men who's on a cross, a thief on the cross. We're not told all that's actually happening We're not given a play-by-play. So we actually need to go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And would you look at this whole chapter, but would you look at verses 4, 5, and 6? This gives us a little more of an insight. Verse 4. This is prophetic, but this is how it happened. Surely, he has borne, notice, borne. It's been put on him. He has borne our griefs. The idea of griefs there is our sicknesses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We looked at that a few weeks ago. The New Testament uses this passage to link up with the healing of Jesus. Jesus' healing of all the sick people is a fulfillment of of verse number 4. So surely, in other words, there's no doubt about it. Jesus' healings fulfill this passage. But there's more to it than that. Verse 4 again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried... Our sorrows, our pains, our sicknesses, our pains. Yet, Isaiah speaking for the nation of Israel, looking into the future, he gets it right. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What this saying is, yes, Jesus healed the nation, but the people's conclusion at the trial, and when they see Jesus hanging on a cross and carrying his cross through the city of Jerusalem, they assume he's being stricken and smitten by God. He's done something so bad. He's a blasphemer. God is getting him back. That's how they saw it. Verse 5, though, but. See it? Verse 4, surely. Yes, the evidence is there. Yet, here's what we're thinking. But the truth is, verse 5, but he was pierced, literally his hands and his feet with a spike, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon I've noticed, I've actually put a square around verse 4, the word born. Verse 4 again, carried. The middle of verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us. He's not getting the benefit out of it. We're getting, and with his wounds we are healed. Why is this all necessary? Verse 6 goes back to our first point today. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've all turned to sin. And notice again, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. People that lived in the day of Christ, they would recognize absolutely Jesus healed people. We cannot deny that. He's done that over and over. He's done something to make God mad because God is striking him. He's being smitten and afflicted by God. But the text is telling us, no, he's not. He's having our sins, our sicknesses, our pains, our sorrows placed upon him. And all of our iniquities are being put upon him. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. We can learn a lot of facts about crucifixion. And we could, guys, and I've done this. We could go through and read what each of the gospels say. And we could kind of put together a verbal idea of what happened physically to Jesus. I mean, we, if we lived in, we could see some of these things actually happening. But there's a lot more. 
Isaiah's been speaking to me lately. And here's, here's my takeaway. Guys, there's so much more happening at the cross than we ever understand. We can learn physical facts and we can think through those and our hearts can grieve. But guys, we have no clue what is happening. We can't understand all that is happening on the cross. So much more than meets the eye. I thought about a list. Yes, Christ endured a scourging. Being wrapped to a post or pulled between two posts with no shirt on him, no robe, nothing. Two men alternating, probably one with a, that's a right-handed man and one that is a, a left-handed man. And they're taking turns with a cat of nine tails with nine leather straps and pieces of bone and metal at the end of those. And they're taking their time and probably getting a running start and just lashing into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and pulling it back. And literally the meat is flying off of his body. You're going to be able to see his bones. That's a fulfillment of the Psalms. Yes, he endured scourging. I've never had that happen. Yes, he endured a crown of thorns on the head that bleeds the most. Very painful. Yes, he had that plaited. And then they hit him with a reed on top of that crown of thorns. I've never had that happen. Yes, he withstood mocking in front of six. You had 600 Romans mocking and making fun of a Jew. So he's put down, and they're up, and they seem mighty. I've never endured 600 people. If if that ever happened to me, I would see that one thing. That's the worst day of my life. It it, it bothered me. It affected me. I was changed. That day, 600 people mocked me. I've never had that. Nails. I've never had nails put through my hands and feet. Nakedness. We know this is what happened. Nakedness. Shame through the streets of Jerusalem. Thirst. I mean raging thirst. Some of you are thinking there was a time I was thirsty. You've never been thirsty like Christ was thirsty on the cross. A fever. Guys, if we have a fever, it's the worst day of our year. He has a fever on the cross. I've never had a bone out of joint to my knowledge. His bones are coming out of joint. Why? Because he is also suffocating. Hey, I've tried to see how long I can stay underwater. And I've had somebody in a wrestling moment put a pillow over my face and frustrate me. And I've gotten a little claustrophobic as a kid under the blankets when two or three people are pinning you down. This person, as all people who die on a cross back then, thousands and thousands of them died from suffocation as their bones are out of joint and they have to make a choice to push up on this and to pull on that. Why would you ever pull your weight on on bones that are out of joint? Because you want to breathe. We can focus on the physical, but guys, that doesn't tell the story. That's where our mind goes. But this text here is telling us, you know what it's saying? Not just that Jesus healed people, but that on the cross, what it's saying is He's bearing all of our sicknesses and all of our diseases and all of our pains. You need to let your mind go. I wrote some words down. All, I don't know how many people are listening right now or who will see this. Every laceration, every cut we've ever had. Every bruise, every broken bone. To my knowledge, I don't know that I've had a broken bone. Some of you have had five or six. Every broken bone, the pain from it. I've never had cancer to my knowledge. Some of you are like, I have it right now. All the pain from cancer, heart attacks, strokes, viruses, flus, diseases. I mean, all the pain is put on this one person. All the people who've ever lived. And you're right now thinking, I don't know that I really see that. That, that's not really like possible. Uh, we get the whole what happened, the earlier list that you read, what happens to crucifixion victims. 
But, hey, guys, if that's all that happened, then lots of other people had that happen to them. What the Bible is describing is so much more. He's bearing literally every pain. Add to that this. Every emotional and mental sorrow of all time. All the loss. All the rejection. All of the loneliness. All of the depression. All of that is literally bearing down on this one person at one time. And, hey, I get it. Right now you're saying... That, that is not possible for one person to have all of that put on them for every person who's ever lived. I would say that too. And that's what I would normally believe. Here's why. Because we don't understand who is on the cross. That's the problem. Who's on the cross makes it possible. You say, who's on the cross? Yes, he's a man. But as infinite God... What this text means is that the Lord Jesus Christ is having all of the physical suffering of the crucifixion and the scourging and all that goes with that. And he's having all the pain and sorrow and physical disease. Again, all of the suffering and sickness. All of mankind, the result of our sin is put upon him. All of the emotional pain and loss is put upon him. But worse than all of that is all of the sin of the entire human race that has ever and ever will live was all put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And only an infinite God could have all of that put upon him. You say, that would kill anybody. It didn't kill him. He tasted death on and on and on for six hours on the cross. It didn't kill him, though. He gave up his life after paying for our death. I'm back in Ephesians now. Would you look back over there? I'm chapter 1. You're not going to see it on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness means literally our trespasses are gone. They've been like, Guys, my sin, I'm aware of it, but it doesn't exist with God. Christian, your sin doesn't exist. Why? Because our Redeemer shed His blood. Redemption means that he gave literally, I don't know, I don't get the impression Jesus was a large man. I'm probably larger in line, larger than I want to be. I'm probably larger than he was, right? He's just an average Jew of that day. But as he's going to the cross, well aware, I, I don't have time to think about what I was thinking, tell you what I was thinking about this week. The eyes of the Lord, yes, they were compassionate, but I believe his eyes were determined, and he knows all of those things are going to be put upon him, and he's going to do what? I'm going to shed my blood. It will be the ransom payment for all of those people who are slaves to sin. I'm going to pay the price to get them out of slavery. I'm going to pay the price of their penalty for their sin. Bring it on. Put it all on me. I'll drain out my blood. It'll drop out in huge drops. I will give my blood as a price to be paid to God the Father to release them from their slavery to sin, to release them from their penalty of sin. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And now number 3. Let's go back to chapter 1 for a few moments. Let's look at not only our sin problem and God's remedy, but we need to see the supreme validation of Jesus Christ. The supreme validation of Jesus Christ. Notice verse number 19. The fourth thing that Paul is praying that the believers would have an awareness of, a revelation, wisdom, and knowledge of. Again, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Hey, guys, the experts tell us, I can't enumerate them all. I've, I've seen a lot. Do you know that, listen, the life of Jesus and his death, the life of Christ is birth, many in the birth, many in his life, and the death of Jesus, those fulfilled 300 prophecies proving and validating that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. 300. But here's the kicker. Even if, and it would be impossible, but even if a person had all a life and a death that fulfilled all 300 of those prophecies, if it were not for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it would nullify all of the other 300. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can have 300 fulfilled prophecies in one life and death, but if you don't have the resurrection, it is all nullified. It is all null and void. We would need to look for another person. But verse number 20 tells us that Paul's saying when it comes to the power of God, the best display is the resurrection. A while ago, I tried to share something that's been striking me. We don't understand. Jeff, why are you not moved more by the cross? Jeff, you don't understand what happened at the cross. Here's more proof. We don't understand, guys. We, we are clueless. We focus on the physical only, and that's bad enough. We don't really know what's happening on the cross. We don't really know what happened in the tomb. You know why? Because if you were to ask me, hey, Jeff, what do you think is the greatest display of the power of God? I would tell you creation. Look at the creation the more we learn about the stars. And not only that, God is holding all these things together. Are you kidding me? Billions and billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars in them. That's the great display. You know what Paul says? No, 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 no. no. That's not the great. God's not flexing to do that. You want to know God's power? It's seen in the resurrection of the Lord. This is the key. If you're taking notes, this is a statement. I'll probably say something to this effect every year I ever preach on Easter. Our whole system of belief rises or falls on the historical fact of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, guys, stop watching. I'll stop preaching. But because there is a resurrection, we keep on preaching and we keep on studying. And it gives us great hope. And we worship the Lord. It's the proof. It's the great display. It's a historical fact. The crucifixion is undeniable. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is deniable by some, but it is not truthfully deniable. The evidence is far too great. Once again, it's written in all four Gospels. I think Josephus alludes to it as well, and others from that time period. Go with me if you would. Let's look. We can't look at all four accounts, but look in the Bible, Matthew chapter 28. Would you turn over there? Just like flying through. Just look at the historical account. Again, we would have to put all four Gospels together to get all of the exact chronology and all of the details of what has taken place. And then we haven't even looked at the burial. So much is written about the burial. But the Lord is buried. He's crucified. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, Can I have the body? Yes, you can have the body. Takes him off the cross, wraps him, washes the body, puts spices on the body, wraps him, puts him in his, borrowed, in his tomb. It's a borrowed tomb to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there on the first day. He's there on the second day. He is dead. It is proof. The resurrection proves Jesus is really dead. But then we come to Sunday. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, that's Saturday, Matthew 28, 1. Toward the dawn, 
of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I think it was Mark says there's another lady named Salome and they have spices. They're going to go anoint. His body very soon will begin decomposing and smelling. And so they're going to put spices and perfumes. They care about him. We don't see it here, but they have a problem. Who's going to remove the stone? The stone's really big. We're going to need some help to remove the stone. But we just want to put some spices in honor of our Lord. Verse 1 again. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. What's the earthquake? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came. Again, one angel here in Matthew. We know that there were actually two from the other Gospels. Matthew focuses on one. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him... The guards, the Roman guards that were protecting, make sure no one tampers with the tomb of the Lord Jesus, to make sure no one steals the body so they can claim he was resurrected. Well, they're on guard. But for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Literally just frozen in their tracks. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, he's risen. Literally, this is breaking news to them. He is risen. As he said, remember he said that? And then he says, the angel says, come, see the place where he lay. I don't know that they went in the tomb to see where he lay. The angel says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So go, look, can you see? He's not here. Tomb's open. Go tell his disciples, and you'll need to look for him in Galilee. I've told you I've done my job. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb, and they're conflicted to emotions, fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said. Literally, the risen Christ met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Guys, this is a fact. Our great hope, Paul is praying, Lord, let them realize the hope of their calling, the sureness, the certainty of it, the confident expectation. Guys, our hope in an inheritance in heaven and glory with God, it is a cruel hoax. It is a worthless myth. If God is not powerful enough to keep his promises. God can make big promises, but if he can't keep them, it's just a myth. It's a hoax. It does us no good. William Barclay, who I spoke negatively about last week. I have to borrow a quote from him this week because it's good. Barclay says, The resurrection of Jesus was the proof that God's power is stronger than man's sin. Let me say it again. The resurrection of Jesus was the proof that God's power is stronger than man's sin. But I like the second part of the quote even better. He says it's also proof that, quote, God's purposes cannot be stopped by any action of man. What is the resurrection? Would Jesus come back? He is so right here. It proves God's purposes cannot be stopped by any act. But what if they kill him? 
they did kill him. But the resurrection proves you cannot stop the purposes of God. I could even add to that and say, nor any action of man, nor any non-action. I know sometimes, guys, we as Christians, we overthink things and we think, but what if that person and what if that group doesn't do something? Then if they don't, they are not stopping the purposes of God. God's purposes are going right on. Nothing we do will stop His purposes. Nothing we don't do will stop the purposes of God. Why? Ephesians chapter 3, it's not on your screen, says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. There's nothing you can think of that would be too hard for God. Nothing will stop His purposes. Everything's on schedule. Everything. This is what the resurrection means. Everything's on schedule. So the reason your handout was so long this week is I have two lists, and I want to fly through them as quickly as possible. Why is the resurrection such a big deal? You say it's the great display. It really shows the power. I don't understand all of that. It has something to do with what was happening on the cross and what was happening in the tomb. I think about creation, but, but the Bible says the resurrection of Jesus is the real display, the greatest display of the power of God. Why is the resurrection so important? What are its ramifications? I probably deleted more than we kept. I think we have seven. Would you write them down? What is the fallout? Why is the resurrection so important? What does it mean? Number one, again, just random one. Another year I may use a different list. Some will be repeated in some years. What does it mean? Number one, the resurrection means that God accepted Jesus' death for our sins. God, I know God accepted. You say, Jesus died for our sin. How do we know that God accepts it? Guys, what we don't have to do is go through life, read our Bible, hear that Jesus died for us on a cross, and it was supposed to be for our sins. And let's hope. Man, let's hope when we die that it was good enough. You don't have to wonder and hope. We know God accepted it because God raised him from the dead as a sign. I accept that as a payment. His blood is a ransom payment for those who were enslaved and waiting on the penalty of sin. Number two, the resurrection also proves that everything Jesus ever said was true. Everything he ever said was true. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life on everything Jesus ever says. Why? Because Jesus literally, repeatedly, multiple times, specifically, says exactly where he will die. He says when he will die. He says how he will die. He says by whom. He names both parties. The Jewish leadership in cahoots and, and talking the Roman soldiers into doing it. Where, when, how, by crucifixion, who will carry it out. And then every time he says it, he always says he will come back to, get, back to life again on the third day. He always says this. Oh, guys, I don't know about you. Anybody who does that, I don't know when or where or how I'm going to die. Jesus is saying it over and over and over. And it happens exactly as he says. You can believe every promise. That Christ says. Number three, along that same line, what it means, the resurrection of Jesus means Bible prophecies really are true. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, others predicted the resurrection of Christ. All of the Bible prophecies are falling in line. When you find a prophecy, it's going to happen. The resurrection proves that. Number four, the resurrection proves, this is again out of verses 19 and 20, this is key. Christ allows us to have access to God's immeasurable power. 
God's image. Like you cannot measure the power of God. There's no way to quantify it. You can't think big enough. you got to go way, way beyond our ability to think. We have access to that. Verse 19 and 20 says it is toward us, this great power. So again, Paul is not praying, God, would you give them more power? We have all the power. What he's saying is, Lord, show them that great power. And in chapter number 3, he's going to say, God, help them to tap into that great power. How do we know this power? Because the resurrection gives us access to that. And then my favorite one this year is this fifth one. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. What does it mean? Hey, we're going to die. We're going to die. Everybody's going to die. There'll be a select small group of Christians that one day will not die because the rapture of the Lord will come rapture them out. All of us will die, right? But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus, by his resurrection, proves that he's death's master. And so death, when it comes for you and I, I'm telling you, it's going to try to make us afraid. It's going to lie to us. It's going to tell us it's going to separate us. We're going somewhere where we don't know anyone. And and is this really all going to come to pass? But the resurrection proves that Jesus takes death and actually uses it, as I've said before, as a door not to separate us from everyone, but to actually take us to God. Notice Romans chapter 8, verse number 11. His resurrection literally guarantees our resurrection. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Look at it again. If you have the spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ, then that same spirit is going to give life to your mortal. Let me give you something, Christians. You're going to get that same body back. And you may hear that and say, I don't want this same body. I hate this body. Or you're going to love that body when it's glorified. Now, you may die and go on to be with the Lord, and the rapture may happen years and years and years later, and you'll be without that body for that period of time. But when the rapture takes place, you will be reunited and have a glor- that same body, this same body for me, will be reunited and glorified. Why? For a purpose. Now, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 and verse 10, if you have it. You see verse number 7? So... So here's what it tells us. Our resurrection is for a great purpose. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Everybody now focus right here. I want you to focus. Here's why this is my new favorite one. It's selfish. It is selfish. Of these reasons, this is a very selfish reason. What verses 7 and verse 10 and verse 5 and 6 with it, what it means is that if you're a Christian, you literally were created for a specific purpose. I thought of a punching bag. There's probably a punching bag right now hanging over at an empty Dick Sporting Goods or Academy Sports. Why was that punching bag made? If that punching bag could think, it hasn't been sold yet, but if it had a brain and could talk to other punching bags and says, hey, what do we do? What are we made for? Oh, we're made for people to kick and hit. People kick us and hit us. Are you kidding me? I'm made to kick and hit? Yep, you're made to kick and hit. But guys, in the opposite way of that, 
What the scripture's telling us is that Christians, you're made for four reasons. You were made to know God. You were made to serve God. You're going to serve God, and it's not going to be labor. You're going to love it. You're made, you're made for that. You're going to be fulfilling your purpose, serving God. But beyond that, you're also made to praise His glory, and you're going to love to, and it's going to come naturally. But the fourth one is this. Literally, you are made, Christians, to exhibit the grace of God. You're made to exhibit, like we are exhibit A. God's like, I want to show how gracious I am. And so I'm going to create people. Yes, they will serve me. Yes, they will know me. Yes, they will praise me. They will praise my glory. But I want them. So so what's our job here? You are going to just let me lavish my immeasurable grace on you through eternity. I'm just going to lavish the best masseuse in the world. If they lived in Anderson and said, listen, I just need to hone my skills every day, and I just need to keep them really, really sharp. Do you mind if I come by your house just a couple hours, hours every day? And if you ever don't want me there, I won't come. But every day I'll come, and just a couple hours, just kind of work you guys over, maybe your feet and your arms and your shoulders and, and your neck. Could I just do that for you? Uh, yeah. I'm your guy. You're the best in the world. Oh. And then bring with that the best chef in the world and the best baker in the world says, hey, listen, I just really need to keep my skills really honed. Can I make y'all supper every night? And, and the baker's like, and, and I'm going to make dessert. Could, could we just do it, please? Can I do Are you kidding? Yes. Bring it on. Take that times a million because God's grace is immeasurable. What he's saying is, I made you so that I can spend eternity just bestowing acts of kindness out of a bottomless The best thing you've ever looked at, the best thing you've ever tasted, the best thing you've ever smelled, the best thing you've ever heard is just a little foretaste. It's nothing for what's coming. This is good news. And that's why the sixth thing is this. Of all Christians, of all people, Christians should live with hope and live with joy. And the seventh is like unto it. The resurrection proves Jesus really is alive and he lives in us. Would you go with me? Verse 13. So we've been focusing on verse 19 and 20. That the resurrection proves the power of God. Would you look back? Because it's tied. The resurrection proves Jesus really is alive. How do we know? One of the ways we know is because he gives his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is an important point. Jesus promised in John 16, I'm going to leave. I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm going back to be with the Father, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He, listen, he kept that promise in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But he continues to keep that promise in every individual Christian. For the last 2,000 years, from the middle, I know at least from the middle of the first century A.D. All the way through the present, every Christian has been given the gift and the fulfilled promise of the Holy Spirit put in their life. That proves that Jesus is alive. Who's giving us the Holy Spirit? Jesus is fulfilling His promise. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Why is He given? You see verse 13 again? In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed you were sealed. You know, I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm not saying this is bad. This is accurate. To an extent. I used to think of sealed of the Holy Spirit like a Ziploc bag, right? 
So we got a Ziploc bag, and we're in there, and the Holy Spirit zips. Whoop, we're in there. Can't get out. Everything's good. Or a mason jar, right? We're in there, and the Holy Spirit seals us. Guys, it is less that idea. What he's talking about is a mark. It's a mark. And it does three things. The mark of the Holy Spirit on a Christian, you need to really pay attention here. The mark of the Holy Spirit in our life serves at least three purposes. Number one, it indicates authenticity. I, I pulled up a picture. I didn't have one in my pocket, so I told my phone, hey, picture of a dollar, dollar bill, you at United States dollar bill. Do you know on that dollar bill there's a seal? If you don't have a seal of the United States, an impression, a mark, then you don't have an authentic dollar bill. The seal means that's authentic. People put it on, countries put it on their currency. The Holy Spirit in us is God's mark. That's a true Christian. But it's more than that. It provides security. Literally, they tell us that ancient rulers and kings would have a ring. And if they wrote a letter, they would roll it up and they could put wax on that line, that seal part, put wax on it and they would take their ring and they would impress it in that wax. And they would give it to the messenger and when the messenger took it to someone, that impression needed to be just perfectly intact. It could not be opened up and then just kind of mash it together again and see if they... No, that did not do its purpose. Why would a king put his seal on there? To secure it. To guarantee it reaches its ultimate destination. So that's the seal of God. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a mark to show that's an authentic person. That is a sealed person. They are secure. We will never lose our salvation. But particularly look at verse 14 because here's what it means. The Holy Spirit in us is God's down payment on eternal life. Verse 14. Who, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Hey, I have an inheritance in heaven. Do you really? Oh, I'm pretty sure of it. How do you know? No, there's no pretty sure. I am confident I have, I have an inheritance in heaven. Why? Because we have acquired, until we acquire possession of it in its place, we have the Holy Spirit. Here's what God says. I'm, I'm so serious about eternal life, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you already. He is a down payment on eternal life. And so here you have a second list, Right? And I'm going to fly through this one. Literally, I'm going to fly through it. And then we're going to rush through the last point. What this point means is that if the Holy Spirit is the mark of authenticity, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment that lets me know I really do have an inheritance, then as if I say I'm a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, then I should be able to see the marks of the Holy Spirit in my life. And from that, I would have assurance that I really am saved. And a Christian should, should be able to see the working of the Holy Spirit in them. Another list that I really shortened, probably cut it in half. But if you want to write these down or just listen, I'm flying through these. Do you have these marks? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Number one, He convicts us of our sins. He did that for me at an earlier time in life. He continues to do that. The Holy Spirit convinced me of sin in 1979 and continues to convict me when I sin. The Holy Spirit, number two, He gives believers spiritual life. He gives us spiritual life. Is there an appetite in you that happened from the moment you got saved? All of a sudden, you, you care more about spiritual things than you did before. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit. Number three, He indwells all believers. He indwells us. When you pray or as you're going through life, if you're a true Christian, you're aware that it's not just you. There's another person inside. You can't have God in you and miss it. 
you will know that God is in you. Number four, according to Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into believers. He pours out God's love. I don't know if that means he pours out us loving God or pours God's love for other people, but believers should have the evidence of that. Number six, I believe it is. The Holy Spirit gives believers assurance. The Holy Spirit confirms and, and, and tells my spirit inside me that I am a true Christian. I have assurance. The Holy Spirit helps me have that assurance. Number seven, he gives us power to witness according to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Number eight, he leads us and guides us through life according to Romans eight fourteen. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God who are being led and guided. Does that describe your life? And then another one, he empowers us to do God's will. Literally, Christians, we don't go through life. This is not the Christian life. I need to study the Old Testament to get me a list of rules, and then I can keep that list of rules. No, we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we're just following the Holy Spirit, He causes us to actually keep those, that law of God without even making that our goal. He causes us to do it far better than we ever could on our own. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. And then lastly... Would you notice with me the one way of salvation? We need to finish here this morning. The one way of salvation. Would you notice in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? Let me preface by reading it by saying that salvation has to be the way described in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For by grace, has to be this way. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Based off of verse 3, when it talked about us being children of wrath by nature, then I can confidently say, since we deserve only the wrath of God, since we only deserve the wrath of God, we cannot approach God. You say, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. Guys, you cannot approach God with any thought anywhere in your mind about your goodness or about your works. I know I said this months ago, a couple months ago, and I want to repeat it because, I mean, you can't have any thought in the front of your mind about, okay, Lord, I want you to save me. And, of course, you do know I'm not as bad as them, right? You do know, Don't come with that. Get that out of here. That is rubbish. That will send you to hell. Don't come. Now, you, Lord, you know who my parents are. And, Lord, you know that I'm a church member, and I got baptized, and I prayed a prayer, and I signed a card, and I, and, and I give money to the church. Please don't have that in the front of your mind, in the middle of your mind. Don't even let it be in the back of your mind. Get rid of all of that. All you're doing is coming to the Lord and saying, God, I need some free grace. I need some free grace. It has to be grace. God's free gift, undeserved you have to go to God realizing, God, you don't have to save me. You don't have to save me. You don't have to save everybody, but you promised you would. His grace must be coupled with faith. Now, the last thing I want to look at this morning, and then I'll be done, is verse 13. Would you go back there? 1, chapter 1, verse 13. Let's finish there today. In Him, in Christ, you also, notice the order, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the order. When you heard the word, 
word of truth that is the gospel of our salvation, the good news, which is what we've been preaching today. When you heard that and believed that, then you were sealed, put the mark of the Holy Spirit. You became authentic Christian. That's when you gained the inheritance. Guys, Ephesians chapter 1 is probably as deep a passage as anywhere in the Bible, right along with Romans 8 and maybe a few passages in Hebrews. I mean, it's this, and we skip the deepest part, verses 1 through 12. We skip the deepest part. But in, please hear this, in the midst of a passage that has been talking about God's role in our salvation, His eternal role, then we come up to verse number 13 and it becomes crystal clear that we on our end, so God on His end, eternity passed, but on our end, we are saved in a moment of time. In a moment, for me it was 1979. When was it for you? We're saved in a moment. You say, when is that moment of time? And here we go. Here we're, we're finishing. We're saved in a moment of time when we hear the truth of God so clearly that it causes faith to come up in us. It creates faith. We hear the truth so clearly that it creates faith in us to trust God's promises about Christ. Let me say that again. We get saved in a moment of time when we hear the truth so clearly that even in our deadness, God helps us now to hear it. God helps us hear so clearly that it creates faith, the kind of faith that actually trusts the promises of God about Christ. You say, then what are we actually trusting? You're trusting God, you're trusting His promises, and you're trusting Christ because you hear the truth so clearly. I thought of it this way. You get saved when you hear the message of God's truth so much so that it sounds believable. It's like, that, that sounds believable. That's the wildest thing I've ever heard. Yes, I'm a sinner. I don't know why he would do it, but I do believe Jesus came and died on a cross. I do believe he rose again. And, and I do believe God says he's going to give us salvation for free. Th- this sounds believable to me. You're about to get saved when you reach that point. For me, it was 1979. We notice this. Faith always follows hearing. We could even say hearing the truth creates the faith. That's why we preach. Christians, that's why we share our faith. Now, there's somebody listening right now. And here's Christians, you ought to be saying, man, praise the Lord. God, thank you for saving me that way. You did it all. Man, you, you, you saved me that day. You, you, you let me hear it. And you made it come to life to me. And it was so believable. Thank you for that. But there's somebody this morning, and here's what you're thinking. What's your name? Jeff? Hold on, Jeff. Look, we've looked at that much. Look at all this. We've looked at that much. I don't know hardly anything about the Bible. Okay. That much, what we've looked at today, these 21 verses, is enough for you to know that God has promised he's extending his grace of free salvation and eternal life. And he's saying that if you will take it by faith, then today you would get saved. Today would be your day of salvation. Today would be the day you're like, I, I don't, I've, I've heard some of this before, but today it's as though God is making it believable to me. And what you're sensing is God is literally, you can't, not, not like my hand, like God is in heaven literally offering. It's as though God is saying, I will save you. Do you trust me? I will save you. Do you trust me? 
And that's how you get saved. Listen, you have to believe. God on his end is extending the grace, but you on your end, you have to believe. Hey, folks, we could talk about verses 1 through 12 all we want. Here's what I know the Bible says. We must believe. You will not go to heaven unless you believe. You say, how does it happen? Believe, receive. When you believe is when you receive. If you don't believe the promises of God and believe God and believe the Lord Jesus, then you will not receive eternal life. But the moment you believe is the moment you receive. It's one and the same. Guys, what I'm describing is you have to put your whole eternity basing it on all, I'm all in on that God is truthful. I believe God is truthful. You have one last note. If you would write this one down. You say, I haven't written any of the other notes. Write this one down. Faith means to hear the promises of God and respond like he's telling the truth. Respond like he's telling. Faith is not just faith in nothing. Faith means you hear the promises of God. Man, it sounds believable. And you respond to the promises of God. As if he's telling the truth. Okay, God, you said you'll save me for free. All I have to do is take it. That's all you do. I've gone really long today. I get it. Guys, I want to let you in on something about me. I got saved in 1979. I became a Christian, and here's why. I didn't want to go to hell. That's motivating. I was a nine-year-old kid, scared to death. Man, I was, you know, kind of a tough little kid. I'd made some friends at Bible camp that week. I'd heard the gospel on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday night. I'd finally had enough. I hyperventilating. I didn't want, to go to, didn't want to go to hell. I didn't care about what the other kids thought. I want you to listen. Do you realize that today what you've heard are better reasons to become a Christian than what I got saved? Hey, not going to hell, that is motivational. You need, to, you need to become a Christian. You need to put your faith in Jesus so you won't go to hell. Judgment is coming. But guys, what we're describing today is a better reason than what I got saved for. You say, what is it? God loves you. Hey, you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. God knows all about it. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again for you. You're made for this. God, literally, here's why you want to get saved. God says, I'm going to make you an object of my immeasurable grace, and I'm going to spend eternity doing acts of kindness on you. You ready to let me save you? Do you believe me? That's a reason to get saved. Scale of one to a hundred. One to a hundred. If a hundred, you say, I'm absolutely sure I'm going to heaven and I have a Bible reason. Scale of one to a hundred, where are you at? How certain? Everybody in here right now, everybody listening, listening right now or listening later. Scale of one to a hundred, where are you on that scale of saying, I am positive I'm going to heaven? Mine, I'm a hundred. Not because of me. Listen, not because of anything, anything I've done. I'm a hundred because of what God did for me in 1979. You say, what happened? On a Wednesday night in June of 1979, I heard for the third night in a row the gospel, the truth, 
and it sounded believable. And I believed it so much that I trusted. And here's how it actually happened, and here's how it would happen for you. I agreed with God. I agree with you, God. I trust. I believe you. I agreed with God. Our first point, I'm a sinner. I I confess that. You have to do that to become a Christian. I confess that I'm a sinner. That's why I need help here. I acknowledged it. But I also believed so much. This is key. I believed that Jesus' death really happened and it was for me. It was for me. Nine-year-old kid, it was for me. I knew that's for me. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm heading to hell. But it's for me. And I believed him so much, I asked God to save me. You say, well, then what happened? He saved me. He saved me. I don't know if he saved me in the pew or he saved me down in the altar when I walked down there. But he saved me. And then you're sitting there saying, hold hold, Jeff. How do you know he saved you? Oh, I know he saved me. Because he promised he would. He promised he would. It's that simple. He can't lie. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads just for a moment, right where you're at. Is there anyone there? Just right where you're at. I hope it's not too awkward, but wherever you're at, just take a moment and maybe someone this morning, you've never done that. You've thought you were a Christian, but you realize this morning, I have never fully heard these things. I've never understood my sinfulness, I've never understood what Christ did on the cross. I, I, I've kind of been a little skeptical of the resurrection. I've never understood what Christianity is about. But today, the Lord made the truth, the word of his gospel, believable. And it's clear, and it actually has created faith. Here's what I want to ask you to do. You've heard the gospel. The Bible says, when you hear the truth and believe, then you are sealed. You're marked by the Holy Spirit as an authentic Christian at that moment. Maybe today is the day. Can I ask anybody out there, have you heard the gospel is true today so much so that, listen, you say, I really do believe that God would save me. I know Jesus loves me, and he's alive, and I believe that he would save me if I ask him. If that is you, then go ahead right where you're at and have a conversation with God. Bring God into your focus, not me. Bring God into your focus, and right now, say, Father, I am a sinner. I have sinned. Those verses were talking about me. And then tell him this. God, I believe. I believe the part about Jesus dying for my sins. I believe it. It was for me. Thank you for doing that for me. Tell God right now. I believe that Jesus died for me. And then because you believe God. And you heard the promises. For by grace you're saved through faith then right where you're at, take God at his word and say, God, because you promised you would, I'm asking you, will you please forgive me of my sins and save me right now? God, will you save me right now? Would you do that? Then take him at his word. Just receive, God, I'm receiving your forgiveness. I'm receiving your salvation. Christian, this morning, I wish we had time to think through those marks of the Holy Spirit, but I want to invite you, please go back and look. You say, I I know I'm a Christian. Look through those marks, identifiers of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Do you have those signs? Christian, would you join me in prayer right now? And let's ask God to give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And then give thanks for what this weekend stands for. Would you join me in prayer wherever you're at? Thank you for hanging in, those that have. Father, this morning we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, God, for his cross, for your willingness to give your son. Lord, we thank you that you displayed your great power in raising him from the dead. And Lord, we thank you that, that you made salvation for free through Christ. He did all the work. God, thank you for the day that those of us who have put our faith in Christ, for that day that you let us hear the truth clearly so much that it was believable and that it caused us to trust you. And Lord, you helped us step by step. You put someone in our life that showed us how to trust Jesus as Savior. God, thank you for Ed Yeoman. Lord, putting him and my, even my grandfather and for my Uncle Lewis. Lord, thank you for the one who paid for me to go to camp. God, thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your son. Lord, I pray for this audience, everyone that is a Christian, God, that they would, and I myself, would have the spirit of revelation and enlightenment and wisdom about you, to know you and your great power and the surety, the certainty of our inheritance and the hope that we have. And then, Lord, how glorious you are in that all the work that you did to inherit us. Lord, show us more and more of that as we just live for you and live with you. And so, God, now I commit this congregation and those that are listening and viewing online. Lord, I commit them to your care. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, just before we leave, can I ask just a couple of things? One. Earlier, I asked if you're a viewer from afar, you've been watching us a while, would you contact us? We'd love to hear from you. Can I add to that a second group? Hey, if there's one person, and this morning you say, today, for the first time ever in my life, I'm like, really meant it. I asked Jesus to save me. Would you go to that same link and just communicate, hey, we're not going to pressure you. We, honestly, we want to give God glory and get, we want to have a prayer of thanksgiving to God if he saved one person. If you're listening and you say, I actually did that today, would you just do that? No one may do it. No one may do it. But if one does it, how can we properly thank God for what he's done unless we actually hear from you? So would you just communicate with us? So those of you that have been viewing from afar, would you communicate with us as well as those uh, that anyone who just got saved today, you trusted Christ. Parents, be looking in a moment for the release of that other video. And Grace View, thank you for your attention. If we can help you this week, of course, uh, the giving, you've already seen that online. Don't forget about Annie Armstrong. We love you guys. I'm going to actually let you go. Uh, it's 1230. Thank you so much. We love you. Have